I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the nice thing about technology, from Facebook to texting, is that we stay connected with friends. But is that actually valuable? We have no reason to suspect that it's important for us to have a thriving social life and a healthy sense of belonging that we say happy birthday to our college roommate's boyfriend or something like this. Maybe the truth is that technology is increasingly telling us what to do. I wouldn't be surprised if by the time my oldest kid, who's six years old, becomes old enough where a smartphone might be relevant if our culture wouldn't have shifted by then, where the idea that I would give him a smartphone would be considered outrageous. Then, why it might be time to rethink American capitalism. I think we right now are at the point where our inequality and our unregulated capitalism actually is reducing growth. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Hey, this is Kara. Before we get underway here, I wanted to let you know we listen to your feedback. We're going to streamline our podcast feed starting next week and eliminate the full show podcast. That way we won't duplicate what we're giving you. We won't clog your feed. Of course, you can still listen to the entire show by grabbing our individual segments. It'll still all be there. And now on with the show. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A few years ago, I read a story about a man who really needed to get some work done. He had a book contract, but he didn't have a book. So he bought a plane ticket to Japan. He worked on the book on the plane, bought an espresso at the Tokyo airport, and turned right around and came home. By the time he got home, the rough draft was done. It was an extreme and kind of expensive solution to a pervasive problem. I think a lot of people think that they are actually focused and getting a lot done, when if you're actually observing them objectively, you would see that's not at all the case. That's Cal Newport, a computer science professor at Georgetown, who realized lots of the work that we do at work isn't all that productive because, frankly, we're kind of distracted. And I think a big culprit for this reality is this effect called attention residue, which says even a, a quick check of, say, an email inbox or a social media website or a text box on your phone, even a quick check can actually leave a residue for 10, 20 minutes that significantly reduces your cognitive capacity. So I think Mm -hmm. what a lot of people are doing is almost focusing on one thing, but with these quick checks sprinkled enough that they're actually operating in a state of significantly reduced cognitive capacity. And by the way, the guy who bought the plane ticket to Japan said it was the best $4,000 he ever spent. Newport wrote about that guy in a book called Deep Work, and he made the case that lots more of us should be doing deep work, work that's focused and free of distractions. The book became popular. Newport went on the road to promote it. And when he did, he started hearing something unexpected from people at his events. Well, they said, in essence, maybe we buy this claim you're making about the unintentional impacts of technology in our professional lives. But really, the bigger issue here is what's going on with this tech in our personal lives. And the forces seem to be different, and the consequences seem for a lot of people to be even more dire, that there was something in the air, and people were starting to get pretty uneasy about the impact this tech was having in their time outside of work. So after this book about deep work, Newport started trying to address people's personal lives. He came up with an approach called digital minimalism, which he believes can change your relationship, not just with technology, but with your sense of how much free time you have. And we'll get to that. But first, as he worked on his book about digital minimalism, which not surprisingly is called digital minimalism, he happened upon two pieces of information that changed how he thought about technology. 
One of them concerned pigeons. They were tapping levers with their beak and we're tapping screens with our fingers. It at least physically looks the same. Newport is describing experiments done in the 1970s during which pigeons tapped on a button to get pellets. In some versions of the experiment, they got food every time they tapped. In other versions, they only got food sometimes. What made them the most excited? When did they tap the most? Not even close. The intermittent rewards drove them crazy. But then to make things even more irresistible, instead of those rewards being food pellets, what's our equivalent of a food pellet? It's indications that someone else was thinking about us, which is almost impossible to resist. Evidence of someone else thinking or approving or disapproving us, we've evolved to to have to hear that. And so it's this perfect combination of tools that turned the smartphones from Steve Jobs' original idea, which is this beautiful luxury object that does a few things well, and into this weird digital screen to which we mediate our whole life and can't get away from. That was the other piece of information that changed how Newport thought about technology. When Steve Jobs rolled out the iPhone in 2007, he intended it to make people's lives simpler. He had no idea what it would become. And so the iPhone really had two primary goals. One was to be a better iPod than ever been made before, And two was to be a better phone than ever been made before, and then to put those together in one package. I mean, I talked to one of the original engineers on the original iPhone launch team, and he said, yes, to Jobs and to us, this was an iPod that made calls, which is important because this way we use it now, where it's a constant companion, it's something you look at all day long, like you're an air traffic controller, bringing in (laughs) urgent information and sending missives out into the world, that's really new. I mean, that wasn't even there in the beginning of the iPhone revolution. It's something that came a lot later. And so I think its recency is important if we're going to step back and wonder its necessity. How do you think uh, Jobs' original vision got changed? How did uh, the iPhone or really any smartphone become what it is today, which is actually mostly not a device for making calls? Interestingly, the Facebook IPO had a lot to do with this. So we had Facebook was... Coming up on its IPO, they had to get their revenue numbers up if they were going to get the valuation that their their investors were demanding. And so how are they going to get these revenue numbers up? And what they came up with is that they were going to fundamentally re-engineer the social media experience away from something that was more static, where you would post things about yourself and read things that your friends post. They engineered it away from that and towards a model where you had this constant stream of social approval indicators like likes and photo tags and comments and favorites and retweets. You had this this constant stream of social approval indicators were coming at you in an app on your phone, which played with our psychological hardware in such a way that made it very difficult not to keep tapping the app. And so once one company figured this out, of course, everyone else followed suit because it was enormously profitable. But the point here being that this way we live today where we constantly look at these screens, is essentially the instantiation of a business model, not something fundamental about how we need to interact with technology in a modern age. But there is something brilliant, as you kind of point out, on playing on, you know, people's sense of how much people like them. I mean, we think of teenagers, for example, as relying a lot on other people's view of them. But the truth is, really, we never grow out of that. And we always want to know what people think of us and how much people like us, right? And and part of what smartphones do is promise to tell us periodically how much they like us. Well, it's one of the things that was clear when I was researching this book is the degree to which our brain has evolved to do very complex and subtle social processing. I mean, we're a social species. Part of what has allowed us to thrive so much is that we're very, very good at monitoring people around us, monitoring people's opinions of us, 
navigating complex interactions to see where we are in a particular social or tribal hierarchy. Our brain does this really well. The problem is that gives lots of vulnerabilities for tech to exploit. And the evidence seems to be clear that starting with the social media companies and then moving outwards, they purposefully did so. I mean, they needed us to look at these screens all the time. I keep going back to that point. We didn't used to look at the screens all the time. Uh, the reason we do is not some feature that users were demanding. People didn't demand the like button. The like button was great for the business model because it caused us to have a reason to keep looking back. What are mm. people thinking about me? Is there new reward? Is there new feedback? It's the slot machine effect. And it was enormously profitable. You've got kids. You must think sometimes about the implications of what we're talking about um, on this kind of almost academic level, right? How does this play on our emotions? How, is the, how does this deal with our psychology? How does this um, sort of appeal to almost a kind of addiction? Uh, but but kids, you know, are not sort of thinking about things on that level. I just wonder, you know, how you think about how this technology interacts with children? Well, the, the literature on this issue is still developing, but as far as I can tell, it seems to be strengthening towards the conclusion that there's major psychological harms, especially to adolescents who have unrestricted access to social media mediated through smartphones. And so we, we see these, these growing number of studies that are strengthening this signal that it, it causes sharp rises in anxiety and anxiety-related disorders. Uh, corresponding hospitalizations for self-harm and suicide attempts go right up, so it's not just a self-reporting issue. Now, again, these type of psychological uh, literatures are complicated, but the sense I'm getting is that we're, we're on the precipice of thinking of this as a public health crisis, and I wouldn't be surprised if by the time my oldest kid, who's six years old, becomes old enough where a smartphone might be relevant if our culture wouldn't have shifted by then, where the idea that I would give him a smartphone would be considered outrageous. When, when you think about adults, a lot of whom probably think, like, maybe kids can't handle this, but, like, I am totally in control of what I'm doing. I use tech exactly the amount that I want to use it. Um, I know when to put it away. Studies show the average person checks their phone 50 or more times a day. Um, do you think people are as in control as they think they are? Well, one of the fun activities of the last few months is that Apple has rolled out this screen time feature in iOS, which just turns on automatically and reports how much you're using your phone for different activities. And so one of the more interesting things in my world is can I find someone who doesn't know that feature exists yet and be there when they look at it for the first time? And if you're there for the first time that someone actually clicks on that and gets the uh, objective report on how much they're using their iPhone, they're almost always surprised and embarrassed. I think in general, with some exceptions but few, people are using this much more than they would like to admit. And when they see the raw numbers, it could be pretty distressing. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Cal Newport. He's an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University and the author of Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. So you propose um, a different approach to using technology called di digital minimalism. Um, talk about what it is and, and sort of how you came up with it. So minimalism is an ancient concept. You can draw a line all the way back from Marcus Aurelius through Thoreau to, in our modern time, Mary Kondo, right? It's an idea that's been around forever in many different guises. And what it basically says is that if you focus most of your energy on a small number of things that you know are very valuable to you, to the exclusion of other things that might have some value, but not as much, you'll end up better off than the maximalist alternative of trying to spread your attention over as many different things as possible that might give you some value. So 
digital minimalism applies this idea to digital technology in your personal life. It says you should essentially wipe the slate clean, get rid of all those apps and services that you haphazardly downloaded or signed up for, and then rebuild that digital life from scratch, but do it with real intention this time, only bringing things in that give you a serious benefit for something that you really value. So if somebody's wanting to start doing this, would that be the first step? Like get rid of everything and then think, what do I really need on this phone? Exactly. I I recommend putting aside 30 days. So essentially at the beginning of the 30 days, you take everything off that you can. And the things that have to remain, you put some rules around it so that it can't have unrestricted access to your time and attention. Then during that 30 days, you get a couple advantages. One, there's a detox experience at first. I mean, you just lose that compulsive tick to have to keep checking the phone. And it's important to get through that detox if you're going to succeed with minimalism. But it also gives you some time to actually just think and get back in touch with what am I all about? What do I care about? What do I actually want to spend my time doing? What are activities that give me a lot of value? So that when those 30 days are over, you can start from a foundation of real self-reflection when you start to ask, what do I really need in my life? What's really going to give me a big win? You um, had a bunch of people try to do this. Do you want to tell like one or two stories of people who did this kind of detox and were like, okay, I'm going to get rid of the stuff on my phone, only have what's absolutely necessary? And maybe like, how did it go? What, what, you know, hurdles did they encounter? That sort of thing. Yeah, well, this was a big surprise because when I asked my readers, does anyone want to do this with me? I thought a couple dozen would agree. And instead, 1,600 people said, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm doing it, which showed me there was a hunger out there. Um, One young woman, for example, told me that when she first took all of the apps off of her phone, she was so used to checking her phone for information that she began to compulsively look at the weather app because it was the only thing left on her phone that if she clicked (laughs) on it, she would get some new information. And she said, I could tell you for that two-week period, I could give you up-to-the-hour updates on the weather in like a dozen different major cities. But then by the time 30 days had gone by, uh, she found that she had largely lost her taste for the apps that used to occupy a lot of her attention. And then she could move on and look at more important things. You know, uh, one father told me about how surreal it was to be the only parent at the playground who wasn't looking down. Many people got back to me about the library. This was interesting. They said, I had forgotten how much fun it is (laughs) to go to the library and come back with a stack of seven random books and know like, hey, I'm just going to be working on these for a while. A lot of people got back into hobbies. People joined organizations. They begin to actually uh, set up dinner, lunch, or coffee dates with people they knew because they couldn't just send them quick text messages or comment on their social media posts. And so for those who went through this, the, the impact was, was quite positive. And most of them, when they went back to rebuild their digital life, did so with many fewer apps and services pulling at their attention. I'm talking to Cal Newport, author of the book Digital Minimalism and an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown. We're going to take a break here for a moment and then talk more about pairing back digitally, hurdles that you might encounter, and retraining your brain. You can always find our full interviews on our website, innovationhub.org, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I've been talking with Cal Newport about pairing back on your digital life. Newport is a professor of computer science at Georgetown, and he began arguing years ago we were getting distracted at work. Distracted by email, by people asking us questions, by meetings, which is when people started telling him, yeah, distraction at work is a problem, but you want to know an even bigger problem? 
distraction everywhere else. Whether it's texts or Twitter or Facebook or blogs, it's a hard problem to solve. And it's hard because it's not like we hate the blogs we're reading or the Facebook accounts we're following. People's complaint is not, this service is worthless. I hate what I'm doing every time I look at the screen. That wasn't the issue. The issue was autonomy. Newport is the author of the book Digital Minimalism, which argues that, sure, lots of things we see on our screens add something to our lives. The problem, though, is that time is a zero-sum game. We only have so much of it. And maybe we could be using it in better ways. People feel like they're using these services more than is useful, more than they know is healthy, to the exclusions of things that they know is more important. That's what's really getting to people. It's not what exactly they're doing when they look at the screen. It's the fact that they can't take their eyes away from the screen at all. That's 10 hours a week that they could be giving their kids undivided attention or having you know, a real in-depth social experience or reading a hard book or improving a skill that might help them professionally or relaxing in a quality way or seeking awe. There's all these things that people value a lot more. And they're avoiding it, or at least they're being pushed away from it by how much they're looking at the screen. So it's autonomy, not utility, that I think is driving this growing cultural unease with what's happening on these screens. What Newport advocates is a clearing out of your phone. Take away all those icons, start from scratch, detox for 30 days, and build back piece by piece, reflecting on which apps you really, really need. Well, the The core idea underlying this philosophy is that you should be working backwards from what really matters. So that type of self-reflection, what do I actually want to spend my free time on? What do I actually want to do with my time outside of work? Having solid answers to that question is, is really necessary if you're going to make smart decisions about your technology. And it sounds obvious, but it's actually really hard. And a lot of people that I've worked with that have gone through this process have reported that it can be almost like staring into the existential void if you step away from these tools at first because it, you're not sure what to do. What do you want to do with your time? And so I really emphasize that this type of self-reflection, which is not easy, it takes a lot of a lot of reflection, a lot of walking, a lot of thinking, a lot of experimentation to figure out this is what I really do want to do when I do have time free. This is what I want to do in my personal life. Here's what I value. That's foundational. And the earlier you start doing that thinking, the more successful you'll be when it comes time to to become a lot more selective and intentional about your tech. All right. Let me ask you a couple of hurdles that I potentially foresee. Let's say you text people all the time, like you're an inveterate texter, um, and you decide this is too much. I've got to step away. I'm always pulling the phone out of my pocket. It's just like it's taking me away from what I'm doing during the day. But you worry, like... What if you miss the one text that says, um, honey, I'm caught in traffic. I can't pick our kid up. You're going to have to. And that's really, really quite important that you see that text. And it's in amongst a million other texts. Well, there's a couple different options there. So if you're someone like me who's just bad about having my phone around and everyone has learned, don't expect that he's going to answer a text right away. Um, one thing you can do is say, well, just call. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you don't even have to pick up, right? Just seeing, you know, a phone call coming through from your spouse, for example, says, okay, maybe I should go check to see what's going on. People who are a little bit more advanced in that have told me how you can customize the do not disturb features on both Android and iOS so that certain people come through. And so you can put your phone into a mode where you're just not going to see the text unless it's from a, a select list, in which mm-hmm. case it will come through and notify you. So uh, there are solutions to those issues. Another thing I wonder about, and I you know, haven't done this detox, but um, 
and I, I'm not sure if the, if this issue in my life is related to technology, but I do feel like my attention span has diminished a lot in in recent years. Um, is that something you feel like you get back if you give away, you know, sort of checking your phone all the time? You do get it back. I mean, essentially, the ability to do long-form thinking, so highly concentrated thinking on abstract concepts, that's very artificial for the human species. It's something that we have to train and cultivate. And actually, our main tool for doing that is long-form reading. So one of the big boosts we got as a species by inventing reading, the written language and the ability to read, is that you have to essentially do heavy calisthenics for your brain to be able to do that. But now your brain is able to do sustained long-form thinking. So the distraction coming out of smartphones has really reduced a lot of people's ability to just stick with, let's say, a text for a long period of time. So correspondingly, their ability to concentrate goes down. But I've heard a lot of success stories of people, once they take out the constant stream of distraction, have many fewer things on their phone, many fewer services in their life that make money by fracturing their attention, and they get back to things like reading long books or taking walks by themselves and just thinking, they get it back. It's like they're getting back in shape after a couple years of not exercising. Hmm. How do you deal with people who just feel like, this all sounds really great, but if they left Facebook, they wouldn't see pictures of their cousin's baby and their best friend who now lives across the country. And, you know, that might be nice for some people to not, you know, sort of partake in, in social media. But for them, they would miss out on lots of things that are happening with people they care about and they won't know about those things anymore. Well, my, my tough love response is, you know, for people who are you're close to, you need to put in more energy into socializing them, real socializing. And for people you're not that close to, this idea that we need to do this lightweight tending of weak tie connections in our social networks, this is an entirely novel idea in the history of human sociality. It's something that was basically invented by social media. We have no reason to suspect that it's important for us to have a thriving social life and a healthy sense of belonging that we say happy birthday to our college roommate's boyfriend or something like this, right? Weak tie social <laughs> network connections is largely a, a sort of a side effect of network science and not something that we need to thrive. And so what I argue to people is what counts, and we know this from the, the psychological literature, is really real-world interaction. So if you're close to your cousin, call them up and ask them about their baby. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're not close to someone, okay, you are not going to be in touch with them if you're not using Facebook. I don't use Facebook, so there's a lot of weak tie connections I don't have. But I think that's okay. You know, you uh, write about how the, uh, how you were in college. I think when Facebook was really kind of starting to get off the ground. But as you say, you've never used Facebook. Do people have people marveled at that? Like your whole adult life? You know, it's interesting. Until about two years ago, it mainly baffled people. So it's just this is very weird. Why aren't you on Facebook? They're very worried from a maximalist perspective that I could be missing out on something. And I would say, well, well, what is it? What's this urgent thing? And they say, well, we're not quite sure, but but how will you know what you're what you're missing out on unless you actually go on there and try? So people were really worried and really baffled. About two years ago, I noticed a shift in the culture, where it became less eccentric and became more interesting to people. And that's interesting to me. So there's some sort of change going on out here where people are are willing to entertain the notion that some of these large platform monopolies are not fundamental, but actually something a little bit arbitrary and perhaps a little bit sinister in their impacts. Hmm. Um, let me just back way up. 
I sometimes wonder, in, in some ways, I have a lot of sympathy with um, the argument you, you make. But then I also sometimes wonder, if you take this really broad view historically, haven't people always worried, you know, when telephones came in and they're like, oh, my God, my teenager is spending all day on the telephone. You know, and when TV became popular, oh, my gosh, my kid spends all day sitting in front of the TV. You know, like haven't people always worried that the latest technology w- was it like it was the one that was going to break civilization? So I've looked into this claim, and and there's a couple issues with it. So one, the notion that we've had a comparable backlash with basically every new technology, this is largely not true. I mean, actually, most of the technologies that are cited as generating these backlashes, what really went on was much more subdued. And so everyone, for example, will use the same Thoreau quote, wondering what Texas and Maine are even going to talk to each other with a telegraph line. That's right, with the telegraph, that's right. Right. But but there wasn't actually this widespread pushback. The telegraph did not have a massive impact on people's actual day-to-day lives. You didn't have a telegraph with you in your pocket when you were out there farming in Concord, Massachusetts. I mean, that, that was a specialized quote. There was a period in the early 2000s where almost every techno-optimist book would quote this same uh, Phaedrius dialogue from Plato to, to argue that, look, here it is. Here's Plato arguing that the written word was dangerous, right? The, the character of Socrates being worried about uh, Phaedrius having a, a written down version of a speech from an orator. Hmm. But again, you look closer at that. And what so- the character of Socrates is actually arguing in in this dialogue is that you don't want to get away from the back and forth dialectical method, because that's an important way to get to knowledge. And that's something that we agree with today, which is why we still use the Socratic method in law schools. And so a lot of this idea that most of these technologies had big pushbacks That's not true. Now, in some cases, we did. But actually, in a lot of these cases, these pushbacks were accurate. I mean, our concerns about television were right. I mean, it completely changed social culture. It Mm -hmm. became the standard that most people in, you know, this country, most of what they did after work was just watch TV. Uh, People complained about this. People were worried about this. I think they were right to. I Mm -hmm. mean, it it had a a massive impact on on civic culture and civic engagement and and, uh, community engagement and community culture. It caused lots of problems. So I think the people who complained about that were right. So I think this is a big issue. I think there's very few precedent for the degree that I think this technology has invaded people's lives and is having impacts. Maybe television is the most comparable. Um, and so I'm not, a big, I don't, I'm not a big believer in this notion that we have moral panics every time something new comes along. I think the reality is a lot more nuanced. And when you look at it, I think we do have reason to be particularly concerned about this particular example. You mentioned before that you maybe see things, the tide changing. You know, people used to think it was so weird that you never had a Facebook account. And then in the last couple of years, people don't think that's as as weird or or they don't frown upon it as much. Um, I mean, I've heard from people on the show that, like, there are more people playing board games. Um, people take digital Sabbaths. I wonder if that is really that is really a a movement or it's a movement on such a small scale that really the bigger trend is actually in the other direction that like actually more people are getting online and more people are spending more time on Facebook, even if some people are going the other way. Well, it depends what scope you're using. But if we keep the scope at the United States, and I think there's there's a couple of reasons why to do that, especially for thinking about the last couple of years, because I think the last presidential election played a big role in the shift that's happening. And that's specific to our country. There's actual hard numbers to show I think this shift is happening. 
Facebook is losing a lot of users, for example. Uh, some of them are going to Instagram, but they're also hiding this exodus by using their international number. So as they expand into other countries, they can, they can make it seem like their user base is growing, but they're losing Americans. Mm. Uh, Twitter's losing users. They're, they're making moves to try to uh, hide or maybe not report their user counts as much because it's not looking good to them. And anecdotally, as someone who is out there and has been out there for years and years publicly talking about social media and its harms, it's just a major shift in terms of the reactions that I get. I had an op-ed in the New York Times a few years ago that was negative about social media. I got a lot of negative pushback. A few weeks ago, I had a similar op-ed and received zero negative pushback. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, this is anecdotal. But as someone who's out there, I'm, I'm sensing this shift. It's just we're categorizing these technologies in a different place in our brain, hmm. and we're ready now to consider critiques. Hmm. Finally, um, give me a sense of uh, where you are in terms of using tech. Is there anything that you think is worthwhile in um in, you know, in terms of technology that makes sense for your life, um, anything that's worthwhile in social media that, that can be integrated into a person's life in a productive way? Well, I mean, I should emphasize that I'm a computer scientist. I'm a tech nerd. I was an early adopter of the Internet before we even had the World Wide Web. So I love technology and think it has and will continue to have the ability to make our lives much better. I think we just need to be much more intentional about what we use and why we use it. So in my case, for example, I've never had a social media account, though I do blog. I really like blogging. I think it's a great medium for certain types of expression, and I've been doing that for more than a decade. On the other hand, I've met plenty of digital minimalists, for example, that use particular social media platforms for very particular purposes. Visual artists, for example, find Instagram very important because they need a steady stream of creative input to help fuel their own creative process, and a lot of artists post their work on Instagram. But because they're digital minimalists, they don't let that be an excuse to just constantly look at their phone. Mm -hmm. In fact, they often don't have Instagram on their phone at all. They only access it on their computers. They've curated who they follow down to, let's say, a dozen artists that they really respect, and they have a schedule for when they check it because it turns out 30 minutes on Sunday night gets them 99% of the value they need while avoiding 99% of the cost. Mm. And so digital minimalism is not so much about these are bad, stop using them, and these are good and you can use them. It's instead about stop getting pushed around in your digital life. I mean, just because you know these companies want you to look at your phone all day doesn't mean that that's at all useful or fundamental. Figure out what you're about. Figure out how best to put tech to work to really boost those things and to be happy missing out on the rest. I mean, we've known from the ancients through today that's almost certainly the right way to live the best possible life. Cal Newport is the author of the book Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. He's also an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University. Cal, thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to read more about digital minimalism or hear our first interview a couple of years back with Kyle Newport, when we talked about how to get more out of your workday, just head to our website, innovationhub.org. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. And for a moment, let's step back 25 years to 1994. Ace of Base had the top song on the Billboard charts. Seinfeld was the most popular TV show. 
You know, chicken salad's not the opposite of tuna. Salmon's the opposite of tuna, because salmon swim against the current, and the tuna swim with it. Good for the tuna. And President Bill Clinton was dealing with a post-Soviet Russia awash in corruption and poverty. With regard to, to Russia, I think that on balance, uh, our relationship is still sound. It is based on our perception and their perception of our shared interests. And when we disagree, we will say so, and we will act accordingly. In that moment, a quarter century ago, America and its economic system, capitalism, seemed pretty great to lots of Americans. Alternate systems had not worked out for Russia or Eastern Europe or China. Our approach appeared unequivocally to be the best. A quarter century on, though, that greatness has begun to feel a little bit shakier, says Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Stephen Perlstein. We have some of the highest health care costs in the world. We live through a painful recession, and our debt is high. But the bigger change has been the change in the social norms. What is acceptable behavior on the part of a company, a manager, a worker, an investor, a consumer? And we've all, in various uh, ways, become less trusting and less cooperative. And, you know, we're out for ourselves a little bit much. Now only 60 percent of Americans, 42 percent of young adults, think a free market system is the best option. That's a big drop, even over the last decade. And Perlstein argues it might be time for something new, or at least a serious reinvention of what we've been doing. I think we right now are at the point where our inequality and our unregulated capitalism actually is reducing growth and reducing the size of the pie. That's not true everywhere. There are some places where, yes, there is a trade-off between fairness and growth. They're on one side of the sweet spot. We have brought ourselves to the other side of the sweet spot. Perlstein is a columnist for The Washington Post and a professor of public affairs at George Mason University. And he says the wild success of those at the top of the food chain, it certainly discouraged many in the middle class and many poorer Americans. But it's more than that. Something fundamental seems to be wrong with the system. Many Americans, whether they're succeeding or not, have the feeling that our kind of capitalism has run off the moral rails, Hmm. that it's too ruthless, that it encourages kinds of behavior that offend our moral sensibility, that undermine our sense of uh, everyone's in this together. It undermines our uh, trust and our willingness to cooperate with each other economically, but also politically in ways that we don't like. And Mm -hmm. we don't like that kind of society. And we wish we could have something that was less ruthless and didn't offend our moral sensibilities so regularly. Was there a point at which something changed? You know, we're talking about, okay, a quarter century ago, you've got the fall of communism and people think, well, for sure— We've been on the right track. And now people are not sure. Was there like a moment where things just turned? Well, I would say there is. we have to go back even probably before the moment you have in mind. Okay. There was a moment in the mid-1980s when we were worried about the future of the American economy. There were blue ribbon commissions and and uh, magazine covers worrying about the competitiveness of the American economy. We were just beginning to have a lot of competition from Japan and from Europe, particularly Germany, 
China had not emerged yet, and, and even beginning South Korea. And our products were too expensive or not good enough. And uh, we were losing market share in our own market. And there was a serious concern that we were going to go the way of Britain and no longer be an economic superpower. And we actually took some fairly definitive steps to make our capitalism leaner and meaner. And we needed to do that because otherwise uh, we wouldn't have been competitive. And there were some losers to that. And it worked. By a decade later, the American economy was back on top. And Japan no longer seemed like a big threat. And China, again, was just coming along. And so we got, we got real confident about it. And in order to do that, we embraced a set of ideas, which we can talk about, and those ideas helped us rationalize what we did. The problem is that in, in, in since, say, around 2000, we have taken those ideas and we have pushed them to too much of an extreme. As a result, we have a kind of capitalism that, that we're not comfortable with. Hmm. One of those ideas was greed is good. Another of those ideas is that there is a trade-off between fairness and economic growth. You could have more fairness but that will always come at the expense of the economy growing. Another of those ideas is we don't need to worry about inequality of income because all that really matters is equality of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And there's a fourth idea that we need to trust the way the market distributes income because it is an accurate and objective calculation of each person's economic contribution. And as a result of that, you don't want to tamper with it because it screws up incentives. And it also is immoral. It's like I created that and now you're going to take something, take right. it away from me. Right. That, that's, that's like theft. So we embraced a bit of all of those ideas. And that was fine. But then we pushed them. It became such an ideology. And conservatives pushed it. Market conservatives pushed it to such a degree that it's now brought us to a place that we're not comfortable with. But it, it, part of what you're saying sounds like we had this notion that, like, the market, even though the market's not a person, uh, like, has this a kind of intrinsic wisdom, like this intrinsic you know, essence of truth. And if we listen hard enough or we let it, you know, alone enough, it will tell us what that truth is. Will tell us what the truth and it will bring us greater, all of us, yeah. greater prosperity than we otherwise would have. It's the old Adam Smith idea, which is that if everybody pursues his or her own selfish interests to maximize income, welfare, profits, whatever, that as if magically the invisible hand will not only um, make that person's life better, but in fact make everyone's life better, that that's the magic of capitalism. Everyone acting selfishly, and even though we don't intend to make everyone else better off, that is the product of everyone acting selfishly. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Stephen Perlstein, author of Can American Capitalism Survive? So let's talk about some specific ways in which you think we should kind of reinvent the capitalism we've got going on now. Let me tick through a few of them quickly and, and you can sort of give me the, you know, your best take on what we would do. Salaries, executive salaries, regular people's salaries, how do you think we should think differently about them in the system you'd like to see than what we're doing now? Okay. 
So I'm a market guy. You have to understand that. I want capitalism to work. So my first instinct is not, you know, to uh, pass a law that says that companies can't pay executives a lot. I can see a lot of reasons why that might not work out so well. But here's what I would do. Uh, a lot of our big companies offer very generous incentive plans, stock options, bonuses. They're basically various ways in which they share their success and their profits with their top executives and their top talent. So what I might do, what I suggest doing, is say, look, let's change the tax code to say the favorable tax treatment that companies get from, for doing that you won't get it in the future unless you spend at least as much money offering some sort of profit-sharing plan hmm. for your frontline workers and all workers. Hmm. That's a way to nudge them in the direction that when companies are successful, they share success with everyone. By the way, when they're not successful, then they don't get shared. There's no guarantees, but that profit-sharing ought to be the norm in companies rather than the exception. And it ought not to be, you know, $250 at Christmas. I mean, we're talking about sharing significantly in the success of the company. Hmm. Are there things that in a kind of re-envisioning of capitalism you would give to everybody that, that maybe people don't have now? The one thing that I mentioned in the book is an idea that probably all your listeners have heard some variation of in recent years because it's got quite popular, which is a universal basic income. But I give a particular twist to that. I don't call it that. The way I frame it is, look, we are all citizens of the same country, the same great country, which has a great economy. And the reason the economy is great is because we have built up a set of companies and institutions over many centuries that really work very well. And these are institutions and companies that we had no, no role in creating. So we just inherited them. And we all should be entitled to an equal share of some of the benefit of that. And so what I would do is to basically, on January 1st or someday every year, send everybody the same check or deposit it in their bank account. The amount I suggested is $3,000 per person. So if there was a couple, it would be 6000 And if they had children, two children, well, that would be 12000 And because this is America and because I know about the politics of welfare, I would say, and if you work or if you are a full-time college or above student, you get another $3,000. Because you – do you think – is it is that because, like, to help sell the program? Or? Well, I don't – I don't I, – I, first of all, it keeps the cost down. But mostly okay. the reason for doing that is so that we are so, as Americans, as much as we want, want this to be or not, we don't like the idea of welfare for people who don't work. We just don't. And it's, it's a, an impossible political sell. Most people do work and most people want to work. So to say that we will only give this extra 3000 to to people who, who work, that's still most people. I mean, right now in the United States of working age people, it's, you know, still, you know, 95% of people. So that would be a pretty good basic income. And if people are working, of course, there's a minimum wage, which we might want to raise a little bit. I wouldn't raise it to 15, but I certainly would raise it somewhere to 10 nationally. And those two things, plus maybe continuing with uh, some other programs, like, for example, daycare programs, perhaps some degree of food stamps, those would lift every 
almost every household out of poverty. Hmm. Now, you might think that's going to be really expensive, and I won't say that it isn't somewhat expensive, although I would pay for it in a couple of ways. Number one is I would eliminate other programs that uh, give people money, which are much more bureaucratic and are much more conditional and have all these conditions. You have to wait in line and show this every month and get checked up on and all that, which are very demeaning to poor people and also very expensive to run. But the other way I would do it is is basically for people whose income are much above the median, I would start to to basically raise their taxes and basically take away with one hand what you've given them mm. with the other. Okay. So give it give it to everybody, but Warren Buffett no, loses it on the other end. No, Bill Gates doesn't get to keep right. it, and yeah, I don't okay. get to keep it right, either, right. by the way. Right. I mean, uh, but basically to, to reinforce this idea that we're all in this together and we're all equal. Now, I would combine this citizen's dividend with an obligation, okay, citizenship obligation, which is, say, for three years during your lifetime, you have to commit yourself to doing public service. You could do it when you're young. You could do it when you're old. You could do it when, you know, you're out of work in the middle of life. It's up to you to decide. But that, you know, to reinforce this idea that we're all in it together and we're all responsible for each other, I like the idea of combining it with public service, which is an old idea, universal public service. It's an old idea. It sort of went out of fashion, by the way. It went out of fashion about the same time as all these other things started happening. That is in the late 80s, early 90s, when, you know, markets were everything. Uh, Public service to many people says government service, although it doesn't have to be. You could do it for a nonprofit. Anyway, that's my idea Mm -hmm. for both giving people something but also demanding of them something privilege plus responsibility. Do you see kind of, I mean, in some ways, I think some, you know, people might hear uh, the things that you're thinking that should change and think that's pie in the sky stuff. But on the other hand, I wonder if there's some degree of fertile ground for a change. I mean, even though we live in in a time of huge sort of political fighting and tribalism. If you think about, for example, President Trump on the campaign trail in 2016, talking about how he was going to give people much better health care. You're going to love your health care, he said. And, and, you know, somebody like Bernie Sanders talking about giving people health care that they were going to like much better than what they had. Is there sort of beyond the divisions any sense that there's something we're moving towards or there's fertile ground for somebody to, I don't know, rethink the way that we're doing American capitalism. I I think you're right about that. There is fertile ground now because people are so unhappy that they're willing to consider radical ideas. In fact, it's probably easier to get the public excited and and get consensus around a big idea than it is a small change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because when you get a small change... The normal person doesn't pay any attention to it, and all the special interests pay a lot of attention to it, and they they basically uh, kill each other, and nothing gets done. So I think there is fertile ground for a kind of for radical change. The problem with that is it could be radical in a good way or radical in a bad way. Uh People were so fed up with things that they were willing to go with a guy who they know was a liar and a misogynist and, uh, and sort of a jerk. But they thought, well, you know, at least he'll shake things up. Well, <laughs> I guess he's shaking things up. People perhaps are coming to the realization that maybe he's not the guy. Hmm. But there is, there is an opportunity, I think, for radical change. 
but it should be radical within the context of what most Americans want and value and find acceptable. Hmm. And this is something that both people on the left and the right, the far left and the far right, sometimes forget. They, they think that they can convince everybody to change their view of something. The left would love to convince everybody to, to take every refugee uh, who knocks on our door and to allow everyone who is now an immigrant to, you know, bring in six relatives or would allow huge amount of redistribution. But Americans aren't comfortable with those things. They don't think they're right um, or they don't think they're good for themselves. And rather than trying to force things down their throats, maybe you ought to listen to the American people and find stuff that a lot of people would, would agree to you know, 60 and 70% of the people would agree to. And let's just do those before we, you know, get doing things that are much more controversial. And there's a lot of things that we agree on. Mm -hmm. If you ask Americans, should all Americans have the right to, to, to medical care so they don't die just because they don't have a lot of money? A lot of people say yes to that. And there are a lot of things uh, like that. Should someone who, uh, you know, invents a company uh, that has billions of dollars in profit, should that person get to, to be a billionaire? Most Americans will say yes to that, too. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that, that, that we agree on and um, that, that maybe sound radical con compared to what we do today, but they're not radical in terms of what Americans uh, think is right. Stephen Perlstein is a columnist for The Washington Post. He's a professor of public affairs at George Mason University. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. One final note here. Though there's been a lot of attention paid to the gap between the richest and the poorest Americans, there's another economic gap that's been widening for the past couple of decades, the gap between productivity and workers' pay. We'll have more about that on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Hannah Ubley and Nadia Lewis. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.